This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. It's a funny thing to be in this room. I started my relationship with the university in this building. I was a secretary in the political science department in 1968 and then became a graduate student in the history department. So it's a, it's a strange way of rounding out my relationship with the university to be back here speaking. I feel it as a great honor to be delivering the first lecture in Bob Kirshner's memory. I also feel that I am little suited for the task. When Barbara Kirshner and Suzanne Zesch asked me to give this lecture, I demurred because there are other people who knew Bob better, and there are people who have done heroic service in the world of human rights. But Barbara said that it would have brought Bob pleasure that he enjoyed stepping away from the grimness of the world where he worked into the world of make-believe death that I inhabit. <laughs> and I couldn't say no to Barbara. I first met Bob in 1989 when he was still with the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office. I met him during a private tour of the county morgue that had been organized by a cellist with the Chicago Symphony who knew both Bob and me. And I think the manner of our meeting testifies to the range of Bob's interests. Music, he knew the cellist. Literature, he knew many people besides me. He loved travel, he loved social justice, and of course, medicine. These all came together in his life and in his mind. On the Sunday we first met, some 30 people in Cook County had died the previous day in a way that brought them to the morgue. I've never fainted, but when I watched Bob saw the, off the back of a suicide victim's head and scoop out the brains, I came mighty close. <laughs> it also made me realize I didn't want to commit suicide, which I had sometimes toyed with, because any death that's not signed, sealed, and delivered in Cook County does go to the medical examiner's office, and that's what they do. They saw off your head and scoop out your brains. <laughs> After that meeting, Bob not only let me call him with questions, but he encouraged me to do so. I was shy about imposing on him, but he always welcomed me warmly, sometimes returning my phone calls after several months' delay because he'd been in Bosnia or Rwanda. In the last months of his life, Bob wouldn't let me visit him in person, but he urged me to call him with questions. I think they helped connect him to the world in which he did vital and, as Suzanne said, really irreplaceable work. Often when I called, he would have the other phone connected to his beloved granddaughter in New York. He would talk to me about murder and mayhem while listening to baby Alana coo in her crib. My formal remarks are drawn tonight from an essay that I call Truth lies, and duct tape. A different version of that is included in writing in the Age of Silence. Several years ago, I had the privilege of being a visiting scholar at Wolfson College, Oxford. All my ideas of Oxford were taken from the crime novels of Dorothy Sayers and Michael Innes. I saw myself punting on the charwell, snoozing like Harriet Vane in the Bodleian Library, and returning to a cozy bed sitting room where I hosted elegant sherry parties while admiring beautiful vistas of college gardens through Elizabethan windows. The reality was a bit different. True, the Bodleian awed me with its history and its card catalog, which is handwritten in outsized volumes. The rest of my fantasy remained just that, a fantasy. It was too cold and too rainy during my time there to punt. 
and the college housed me in a building which had been a nursing home <laughs> until the Oxford County Council condemned it. Whereupon Wolfson bought it to serve as housing for graduate students <laughs> and visiting scholars. My room was on the ground floor, and I shared the third floor bathroom with five male students <laughs> whose many gifts did not include personal hygiene. <laughs> After a while, I began feeling like a caricature of Catherine Hepburn in The African Queen, at least in the early scenes of it. I carried Detol, a British equivalent of Clorox spray, with me to the bathroom at all times. When I showered, I encased myself in plastic, quickly sticking an arm or a leg under the water, always wearing plastic slippers, which I sprayed with Detol once I was back in my own room. V.I. Warshawski, my fictional detective, has, at her best, haphazard ideas of housekeeping. These so exactly mirror my own that when my former Swedish publisher asked me why she was so messy, and I said I wrote what I knew. <laughs> he backed away in disgust. In fact, I think this might have been why he stopped publishing me. Under these circumstances, people may not want to imagine the condition of a bathroom that made me wrap myself in plastic and Dettol. Lately, whenever I fly, that nursing home dormitory comes vividly to mind. Everyone knows the routine. We take off our shoes, we walk in our stockings, or even bare feet across a filthy floor. We must place not only our overcoats, but also our suit jackets in a tub that has held other people's shoes. On one trip, when I was pulled over for extra screening, I watched helpless as the security staff stuck bins and shoes on top of my velvet blazer and my hat. When I protested, they naturally prolonged my time in the penalty box. I guess I'm waiting for the day when I develop athlete's foot in my scalp. <laughs> Dirty flying feels symptomatic of our life nowadays. It's though it's as though the debris of the World Trade Center has coated our minds and our hands, as well as the floors of the airports we walk through. Every aspect of life in contemporary America is affected by the public reaction to the events of September 11th. A ruinous war in Iraq, the threat that the United States will compound the sins we committed in Iraq by going to war against Iran the erosion of our civil liberties, the collapse of our economy so that we cannot afford to fund programs for the public good, even if the government had the will to do so. And over it all, the use of language to distort, to corrupt, to lie, on a scale only George Orwell or Joseph Goebbels might have imagined. During this time, Americans have been angry and confused. Our sense of self as a country has always been an optimism bordering on arrogance, dating to before we were a country. When John Winthrop was leading his group of Puritans from England to Massachusetts Bay in 1630, he lectured them that, we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, we will cause him to withdraw his present help from us. The sense of being set apart from other people, of being better, more holy, more surely right, has persisted through the four centuries of European life in America. This sense has meant different things to different people. To some, it has meant a freedom to experiment, to try new things, not to be bound by shibboleths. Others took it to mean that our soldiers and our military were invincible. They can't figure out why we can't dominate Iraq, Afghanistan, indeed, the whole world with our military might. To others, 
Our commitment to justice and the rule of law, even in the shameful day of segregation and lynch mobs, did indeed make us a city upon a hill, a beacon for all oppressed people everywhere. I grew up in the belief that America was a haven. The Statue of Liberty, the mother of exiles, welcomed my 13-year-old grandmother when she had to flee a pogrom and sailed alone into New York Harbor in 1911. I knew as a child that my own existence was only possible because America had welcomed my granny. I also grew up when the federal government sent marshals to protect black children as they had to walk to school past angry, rock-throwing mobs of white adults. I grew up when the Supreme Court struck down laws that permitted discrimination in schools, the workplace, the bedroom, indeed, in the courts themselves. I cannot find words to express the depth of my loss or my outrage to see my country abrogate treaties abroad and violate the very heart and bones of our Constitution here at home. As a writer in a time like this, it is hard to know what to say and how to say it. Every writer's difficult journey is a movement from silence to speech. We must be intensely private and interior in order to find a voice and a vision, and we must bring our work to an outside world where the market or public outrage or even government censorship can destroy our voice. This is not a new problem in America. When Melville published Moby Dick in 1851, the reception by both public and critics was extremely hostile. The book we consider today one of the highest achievements of American letters sold a handful of copies, about 500 in Melville's lifetime. The reception left him confused and poor. He worked at dead-end jobs to support his family, and he struggled at night to write. For almost 30 years, he produced only fragments, wisps of prose, that he burned with the dawn. At one point, he wrote to Hawthorne, I am so pulled hither and thither by circumstance. The coolness, the silent, grass-growing mood in which a person ought to compose, that can seldom be mine. Dollars damn me. What I feel most moved to write, that is banned by the market because it will not pay. Kate Chopin, a single mother who supported six children with her writing during the 1880s and 90s, received such a storm of criticism to her novel, The Awakening, that Scribner's actually halted publication of her next book, which was on the printing presses at the time. The story of a woman's attempt to liberate herself from a stifling marriage by having an affair was too much for the 300 critics who panned The Awakening in 1899. Chopin herself died five years later at the age of 54 without seeing her work come back into print. Silence does not mean consent. Silence means death. When we have something to say and we are afraid to speak or forbidden to speak, we feel as though we've been walled into a closet. Silence can come from the market, as it did for Melville. It can come from public hysteria, as it did for Kate Chopin. It can come from the government, as outright censorship. Today, in America, we are finding pressure to silence coming from all these sources. Calvin Trillin once commented that the shelf life of a modern writer is somewhere between the milk and the yogurt. <laughs> if you want to know why that is, turn to that astute social commentator, Sylvester Stallone. Yo, he said to the New York Times, I'm astounded by people who take 18 years to write something. That's how long it took that guy to write Madame Bovary. And was it ever on the bestseller list? <laughs> In his inimitable way, 
Sly spoke up for the industry. Although he often portrays the loner hero succeeding against all odds, Stallone has become one of the richest people in America by being bankrolled by the conglomerates that he fights on screen. By the way, Sly was a little off. It actually took Flaubert only five years to write Madame Bovary. Still, quite a difference from the three days Stallone says it took him to produce the script for the first Rocky movie. I published my first novel 25 years ago. It was a year before my agent found a publisher willing to take a chance on a female private eye in America's heartland, because he kept on plug but he kept on plugging because there were more than 40 publishers to go to, and they had names to conjure with: Alfred A. Knopf, Tickner and Fields, G.B. Putnam. When you said those names, you thought of books. You thought of Horton, or Hammett, or Faulkner. Today, there are essentially seven publishers. Their names include Gulf and Western, Disney, Time Warner. You say those names, and you think of Mickey Mouse. It's taking the guy 18 years, or even five, to write about a provincial doctor's wife, dump the jerk, which is exactly what Rupert Murdoch's company HarperCollins did a few years ago. They canceled contracts with over 100 writers who were late in delivering their manuscripts and forced them to return their advances. My own publishers, who are part of the Pearson Empire, not the publishers of writing in the Age of Silence, but the publishers of my novel. Sorry, my novels. Uh, they sent me a letter threatening me with legal action if I didn't deliver a manuscript to them on January 31st of this year. Simon & Schuster, now part of Viacom, has been the industry leader in turning books into products. Early in their conglomerate life, they brought in the head of Procter & Gamble's Pampers division, who announced that a book was a product like a pamper and could be and should be marketed accordingly. <laughs> of course, publishers and booksellers alike have always published and sold books to make money, but there can't be another product in the marketplace where so many his people historically come to it out of a deep love for the product itself. And the product, what a name to use for the written word that can breathe, breathe life into the soul. While the Knopfs or Bennett Cerf would look at their whole list to make up a profit and loss statement, the Procter and Gamble approach meant that each book was turned into a profit center. In the 80s, at the same time that publishing was contracting, distribution outlets were consolidating. Over half US book sales now take place in price clubs where books and toilet paper are viewed simply as different forms of trees. Another quarter are sold in the mega chains like Barnes and Noble or Borders. 8% are sold online or in airports or supermarkets and the remainder in what dinosaurs like me think of as bookstores. And their number is dwindling fast. I learned today that Women and Children First in Andersonville, which was the first store in the world to host a reading of my work and that of many other women, may have to close its doors this summer. Big box retailers do not try to promote literature. They just churn the 200 or so titles that they stock. These are kept at the front of the store because they are the one item for sale in America that carries a retail price on it. If you see a $25 book on sale for $5, you will believe that everything else in the store is discounted as steeply and you won't bother to check whether in fact you're getting that bargain. A big box retailer doesn't have to have a staff that reads or knows books. They only need a high school student who can operate a cash register. Despite the volume of books they sell, megastores have actually decreased 
the number of different titles sold during the last decade by about 10% a year. This has dire consequences for the diversity of what is published. Kate Chopin is by no means the last established writer to find herself without a publisher in America. Their numbers are growing rapidly. Writers of long standing, friends of mine with 10 or 20 published books to their names, with sales that made a respectable profit for their publishers, can't find anyone to print their books today because they're not selling enough. Because they're such big players in the business, big box retailers help make publishing decisions. Their buyers have a say in everything from jacket design to what books get published or published in a big way. Their goal is to find titles that will turn over effortlessly. In a meeting last year with Random House executives, Costco stressed that they will replace books with dog food if dog food sells better. Please think about that the next time you are tempted to buy that half-price book instead of going to the seminary. Forces of silence can come more subtly from the market than from the edicts of a totalitarian state. In a country where TV and newspapers shed their reporters to maximize profits for a handful of investors, it becomes harder all the time to find reliable information. Instead, we are treated to innuendos, glib one-liners, and outright lies. The biggest, of course, being that we could prove that Saddam Hussein caused the 9-11 attacks and prove that he had massive nuclear and biological weapons. The New York Times has reported that more than 20 federal agencies, including the Departments of State and Defense, create fake news clips, including actors who pose as reporters and who conduct stage interviews with administration mouthpieces at an annual cost to taxpayers of around $254 million. These and other reports have not stopped the administration from also trying to open an office of disinformation under a number of different names. All these acts make it ever harder to tell truth from lies. Fiction can provide a form of truth, not the truth of hard news carefully investigated, but that of real emotions carefully explored. But when the same media giants who own our TV stations and newspapers also own our book publishers, then it's time to worry about what voices we will be allowed to hear. Whose truth, what truth, will fall to the maximized bottom line? Those books that stir our souls, those books that come from Melville's silent, grass-growing mood, will not survive in a world that exists only by the narrow criterion of that line. We have become indeed, as Melville said, damned by dollars. When I was starting out as a writer, libraries played a major role in my success. My first book, Indemnity Only, sold about 3,500 copies. 2,500 of those were to libraries, which were enough sales for my publisher, which is now defunct, to request a second novel. Today's publishers expect a book to sell about 25,000 copies in hardcover before they will ask for another book from a writer. It's hard to sell 25,000 copies. I know it doesn't sound like a lot compared to dog food, but... Um, <laughs> My, it was my sixth book before I sold that number. Everything is harder for new writers now in many ways, and one of those ways is the steep drop in book sales to libraries. Somehow in the last two decades, Americans have decided that it is outrageous to pay taxes to support the common good. As a result, we have repeatedly cut library budgets until today 
on average across the country, libraries have about a third of the money in real dollars to buy books that they did 20 years ago. Just as libraries have been heavy losers in contemporary budget wars, they have also been on the front line of today's assaults on America's most cherished liberties. This assault began with the USA Patriot Act, which was passed in the feverish, fearful weeks immediately after 9-11. In the five plus years since its passage, although the Justice Department has often claimed that the act has thwarted terrorism, they have not yet come up with any actual examples, even when pressed by Congress or reporters to do so. The act has, however, given the FBI, the new Department of Homeland Security, and local law enforcement an amazing and terrifying arsenal of weapons against citizens and ordinary criminals. About a decade ago, I was on the fringe of an exciting Chicago drama. What happened was this. A couple of men, call them Ben and Jerry, owned a business together on the city's north side. They had a standard insurance policy for their partnership so that if one partner died, insurance would, would cover the loss of his investment in the firm. Ben was having an affair with Jerry's wife, Lucy, when Ben got greedy. He wanted Lucy and the whole business all to himself. Lucy agreed, and she helped uh, Ben find a hitman to kill her husband. Once Jerry was dead, they could collect the insurance and live agreeably, if not happily, ever after. Well, Lucy found a real hitman, not an off-duty cop. You know, I'm forever reading about unfortunate women who go into bars looking for hitmen to kill their husbands, <laughs> only to find that they've hooked up with an off-duty police officer <laughs> who arrests them. I just feel like our police could do better things with their time than hang out in bars misleading trusting women. <laughs> but that's another story. Our story tonight is about Ben and Lucy and their real hitman. At the 11th hour, before Bob could be called on to do the autopsy, Lucy got cold feet and ratted to the cops who stopped the hitman right before he killed Jerry. Ben was arrested. He was ultimately found guilty of conspiring to commit murder. But when the cops arrested the hitman, they found a stack of index cards next to him on the car seat. The top one read, Killing Orders, Sarah Paretsky. <laughs> the cops were excited. They thought they'd found the mastermind behind the hit. <laughs> At 2 AM, they raced off to the state's attorney to apply for an emergency warrant. Fortunately for me, the assistant state's attorney catching night duty was a mystery reader who knew that Killing Orders was the title of one of my novels. It turned out that the hitman had a list of books that he wanted to read when he hit, hid out after the job, and I guess I should feel flattered that mine was the top of the list. <laughs> so the cops never arrested me, for which I am very thankful. I am glad I did not have to deal with being interrogated by the Chicago police at 2 in the morning. Nowadays, that story has the potential to play out differently. Under the Patriot Act, the police do not have to explain why they want a warrant. They needed only claim that my work was related to a criminal investigation with a possible, not, a, not an established, but a possible connection to terror without saying one word more to the state's attorney. To get a warrant, they don't have to show probable cause they don't have to offer proof of any kind, and the state's attorney or judges are obligated to issue warrants if they are told that there is a possible connection to a terror investigation. The police could take me away and make me account for myself without allowing me to talk to a lawyer. They could hold me indefinitely without charging me. They could keep me from telling my family where I was. They can tap my phone. For all I know, they are tapping my phone. Actually, um, I told the ACLU I wanted to be a party to the lawsuit against the different phone companies for colluding in the wiretap, and they sent away under the Freedom of Information Act to see if the FBI had a file on me, and the FBI wrote back and 
said no they didn't and that they were tired of citizens assuming that their major function was spying on us. <laughs> um, anyway, even if they never arrested me, agents could come into my house under sneak and peek provisions in the Patriot Act. They can search and seize my files, my books, download data from my computer without showing me a warrant or indeed telling me that they're in my house if they come when I'm not there. We don't know how many times this has actually been done to just ordinary criminals, not people who have anything to do with terror, or ordinary citizens. One instance came to light after the Madrid train bombings when the FBI arrested an Oregon convert to Islam whose fingerprints they erroneously identified as being at the bomb site. During the 17 days that they held him, they went into his house and helped themselves to his books, his papers, and his computer files. A Buffalo, New York artist had an even more harrowing experience. Steve Kurtz was creating a piece for, for an exhibition on genetically modified food. When his wife suddenly died and Kurtz called 911, the FBI actually arrived ahead of the EMT crew. They had been tapping his phone and his email. In concert with the Buffalo police, the FBI arrested Kurtz. They held him without charging him. They seized all his books, his hard drive, his papers. When the autopsy proved that his wife had died of a heart attack in her sleep, they did finally let him go home, but they have not dropped charges, although they have never specified the charges. In a reprise of Kafka, the United States government, unable to decide on a charge against him, has kept for the last three years, has kept changing the trial date. A particularly nasty feature of the case is the government's claim to a judge that they had found documents proving Kurtz supported terrorism. At a recent court hearing, they were forced to produce their evidence. A postcard announcing a museum exhibit that was illustrated with a photograph of an exploded car that had Arabic writing on it. The judge was furious. He had not been allowed to see this museum ad when he was forced to issue the search warrant. In addition to the Patriot Act, the government has been using national security letters in a massive way. In the last five years, the FBI has issued 30,000 national security letters each year, compared to 300 a year before 9-11. These letters compel the recipient, whether a library, a bookstore, or any business such as a hotel, to give up all records about its customers or its guests to the National Security Agency. NSA letters allow the FBI to follow not only the emails and phone calls of the target of the letter, but of any person the target is in touch with. For instance, if the co-op received such a letter, they would have to turn over all their customer records to the feds, who could then, without telling us, go into our emails, into our computers, get the emails of anyone we had ever corresponded with, and go into their emails. And not only that, under a provision of the Patriot Act, those records are held in perpetuity. There is no sundown provision for deleting them if they decide the investigation has led nowhere. As a deputy attorney general told Congress in successfully defending the Patriot Act's extension last year, quote, Libraries and bookstores should not become safe havens for terrorists. A further feature of both the Patriot Act and the NSA letters is a gag law. Recipients of letters or Patriot Act subpoenas are forbidden under penalty of five years imprisonment to reveal that they have received a letter or a subpoena. 
Librarians have had one tiny victory in this scenario. Connecticut librarian George Christian was threatened with sanctions in 2005 for consulting with a lawyer after he had received a national security letter demanding access to his library's records. In April 2006, courts ruled that he could discuss the matter with his lawyer. Yesterday, another court finally lifted the gag order and he was allowed to speak publicly about the situation. According to a survey conducted by the Library Research Center at the University of Illinois in 2002, our government seized circulation and internet use records from at least 11% of the nation's libraries in the first year of the Patriot Act. We don't know which libraries were involved. The study had to be done anonymously because if librarians reported that their library was the target of a search, they faced arrest and imprisonment. I wrote the Library Research Center to see if they were updating the survey to include the last four years and learned that the FBI had denounced the study's author in the pages of the Wall Street Journal as a supporter of terrorism. She was threatened with unspecified reprisals if she continued the study, so she stopped. I don't know about you, but that news makes me sick. We like to think in America that we are all four square for individualism and for individual expression, and that only in totalitarian states do people cave into threats. I'm not so hopeful. Maybe this is because I grew up in, a, in an idyllic Midwestern town in the 1950s when America was obsessed with the threat of communism. In Lawrence, Kansas, people felt the Cold War as something real and very close. Protecting Lawrence and America against communism was a town obsession. A high school teacher working on a PhD in Soviet history was forced to resign since only a communist would want to learn Russian. The daily newspaper was vigilant in pointing out godless elements in town and inciting action against them. When my parents protested a religious revival held in the high school at which student attendance was mandatory, the paper printed their names and their phone number and urged citizens to tell them how little use America had for communist-loving atheists. For weeks, my parents got hate calls in the middle of the night, urging them to go back where they came from, Southern Illinois for my mother, Brooklyn for my father. <laughs> Today, we are once more allowing panic peddling and fear to rule us. Among many recent acts, we or our government have done the following arrested a library patron in Morristown, New Jersey for looking at foreign language pages on the web. We held him for three days without charging him, without letting him call a lawyer or notify his wife. The Morristown Library was so furious that they courted arrest by reporting this in the New Jersey Law Journal. We imprisoned Georgia novelist Jocelyn Jackson for discrepancies between her driver's license, which was issued in her married name, and her social security card, which was issued in her birth name. Embarrassed local police who held her in jail for three days, explained that federal anti, who held her in jail for three days, explained that federal anti-terrorism laws gave them no leeway in dealing with such a situation. We imprisoned an 81-year-old Haitian Baptist minister when he landed at Miami Airport on October 29, 2004. He was traveling with a valid passport and visa. We took away his blood pressure medicine. He had lost his voice box to cancer, we or his larynx. We ridiculed him for not speaking clearly through his voice box. He collapsed and died in our custody five days later. We seized a Canadian citizen as he boarded a plane in Rome. We whisked him by private jet to Syria for 10 months of torture. 
We released him without apology when we realized he was not a terrorist, and we rejected a lawsuit for damages on the grounds that we would have to discuss our policies of rendition and kidnapping in court, and that would be a violation of something, I'm not sure what, our state secrets. We have held people without charging them for over four years. Many, still in prison, face indefinite car incarceration. We have conducted star chamber trials in Guantanamo where we issued verdicts based on confessions made under torture. We voted in 2006 to define the rules of the Geneva Convention as we see fit, claiming our right to incarcerate people without charging them or trying them to transport them to distant prisons or to torture them. In short, giving our government, more specifically the president, power to commit acts, quote, of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation, as Thomas Jefferson put it. What is the appropriate response of a writer in times like these? At the most basic level, it's my job to continue to write stories that I hope people will want to read. More fundamentally, I think it's my job to try to fumble my way as close as I can to the truth, not to accept a slippery, slipshod misuse of, misuse of language or ideas, not to let the fear of arrest or public outrage lead me into self-censorship. This particular essay began as a talk I gave to some libraries and state library associations about the Patriot Act and the library. I was scheduled to speak at the Toledo Public Library the night before we shocked and awed Iraq. The library asked me not to deliver this lecture because it was so controversial that people were turning in their tickets. The library asked me to emulate other writers who came to their series, to speak in their series, by just giving humorous anecdotes about my writing life. Oh, the time I was arrested for having mismatched social security and driver's license names and other lighthearted memoirs of the post-terrorism age. Well, believe it or not, I don't like hostility. I don't like confrontation. My upbringing has made me particularly vulnerable to angry criticism, to the implied fear of being a bad daughter, of not being submissive enough. I thought about acquiescing in the library's request. Then I thought about all the times I had caved into the demands of an angry person and how filled with self-loathing self I had been afterwards. I did give this talk, but my knees were shaking so badly I had to grip the podium throughout it. I was fortunate that night. The 500 people in the audience who had come out in a rainstorm gave me an ovation. Many, including several abortion rights advocates, told me afterwards that each thought she or he was the only person in the community who opposed the impending invasion, as well as the sacrifice of civil, liber civil liberties in the name of public safety. A police officer at the event told me, under vow of not revealing his name, that police forces all over America now feel empowered to disregard basic safeguards on citizens' rights. In the spring 2006 term, the U.S. Supreme Court showed that this officer was right by overturning 800 years of English common law precedent that makes a person's home an inviolable space in this country. Speaking for the majority, Chicago's own Anton Scalia said that if somebody's home is invaded and trashed in error, as happens apparently about 200 times a year when the police target the wrong person, the person has the remedy of civil litigation against the police. Please pause for a moment to imagine how effective that will be. If the crowd had booed me from the stage in Toledo that March night, 
I don't know whether I would have found the courage to keep making these remarks. I am as weak and as easily manipulated by angry rejection as anyone else. I'm not interested in writing propaganda novels any more than I want to read them. That is, books written only to make a point, to show that four legs are better than two, or all males are testosterone-crazed villains, or that women inevitably use our bodies to make good boys do bad things. There's a reason that the writers we know from Stalin's Russia are Pasternak and Akhmatova, not Gribachev, who wrote Spring in the Victory Collective Farm. <laughs> Pasternak may have wanted to make a point, an ardently felt point about human freedom, about the confusion we feel in the midst of social upheavals and how hard it is to know the right way to act. But he wanted to write about human beings caught up in events, not idealized political types. And that's also my goal. At the same time, books are our guides, our supports. They show us that, that we are not alone in our belief in liberty and freedom. The only way to keep ourselves free is to speak, not to let ourselves be silenced either by pernicious laws or by mob screaming or the power of the market. My own stories come from the events around me, but the events around me today are define my ability to turn them into stories. I have often written about corporate corruption and the cynical indifference of large institutions to the well-being of ordinary citizens. But believe me, Enron and Halliburton defy my imagination. My detective often turns to a reporter friend, Murray Ryerson, who can publicize what's happened and make it hard for the criminals to hold on to their jobs, even if they get to keep their stock portfolios. But all over America, newspapers like Murray's have been bought by media conglomerates, which cut their staffs because every time they fire half their reporters, their stock price doubles. So papers don't have the resources to investigate corporate or government scandals. And many times, a newspaper or television station itself is part of a conglomerate that either is actively participating in similar crimes or won't reveal crimes by government officials because the conglomerate wants political favors. When I sit down to write these days, I feel like a toy ballerina on a magnet being twirled in circles so fast that I can't figure out what to look at. The toxicity I encounter at airports pervades the landscape. I feel that I'm walking under a, under a cloud not of germs or radiation that plastic or Dettol might keep out, but of lies. When the government tells me there's a code orange alert, to wrap myself in duct tape and plastic, but to go shopping as long as I don't buy anything French because it's my patriotic duty to buy and run up debt, but I mustn't have bankruptcy protection. I become just about speechless with the disconnect between truth, lies, and duct tape. I want to walk. No, I want to run away from these horrors. I want to play with words. I want to dazzle readers with my brilliant turns of phrase. But the times get me down. Instead, I keep thinking of Anna Akhmatova outside the prison in Leningrad, where her son was being held by Stalin. She wrote, in the terrible years of the Yezhov terror, I spent 17 months in the prison lines of Leningrad. Once, someone recognized me. Then, a woman with bluish lips standing behind me woke up from the stupor to which everyone had succumbed and whispered in my ear. Everyone spoke in whispers there. Can you describe this? And I answered, yes, I can. Then something that looked like a smile passed over what had once been her face. I think as well of Bob. In the language of the streets, he didn't just talk the talk. He put his body and his mind out there. 
starting in 1985 with the disappeared in Argentina, in 1999 with Andrew Wilson, tortured here in Chicago by the police, in Kenya, where he was briefly imprisoned himself, in Bosnia, Rwanda, El Salvador, the West Bank, in the killing fields of the world. When I was preparing for tonight's talk, I looked at a Physicians for Human Rights document on torture that Bob helped write. The human body is so fragile, and the harm we seem to love to do it is endless and shocking. When the President of the United States sanctions such acts and his chorus of faithful dismiss them as no more than college pranks, I'm shaken to the very depths of my soul. But in the memory of Bob Kirshner and Anna Akhmatova and of every other rare person who had the courage to speak and to act in the face of monstrosity, we have to stop shaking our heads and tutting helplessly what can one person do anyway. We have to all decide where our most effective sphere of action lies and take on those actions. I've been told that the rabbis say that when our life ends and we pass before the divine justice, we will be asked four questions. Were we fair and honest in our business dealings? Did we spend loving time with our families? Did we study Torah? And last, but most important, did we live in hope for the coming of the Messiah? I don't think Bob believed in God any more than I do, but he certainly could have answered yes to all those questions. And even though I don't often believe in God, I do hope for the coming of the Messiah. I do believe that we can shed these shocking ways of dealing with each other, that we can, in, excuse me, that we can, in Isaiah's words, loose the bonds of wickedness, let the oppressed go free, bring the homeless poor into our houses and share our bread with the hungry. And the Messiah will only come if we do act out lives of justice. We're living in bleak times now, but Bob did hasten the coming of the Messiah through his work. In his memory, sorry, we can all do no less. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we certainly can take questions, comments, or answers if there are any. I know the room is hot and that I, I told Suzanne I would speak for 32 minutes and I think it was 42, so um, <laughs> uh, we, won't, we won't prolong it indefinitely, but, um, or we, yes. Uh, the question had to do with the first casualty of war is truth, and what do I suggest that we do with this government that has destroyed our way of life? I was afraid that someone was going to ask that, um, because I don't have a good and glib answer. I think that a lot of people in this room have tried many things for the last six years and maybe more years than that in writing letters and taking to the streets and running election campaigns. Um, I'm not an advocate of the violent overthrow of the government, even though the fantasy does cross my mind now and then. <laughs> but I think of places like Iran and think, look what happens when you replace one repressive regime with another. But I do think that we all have to keep chipping away at it in in the ways that are possible. I'm a writer, I have to keep writing about it and talking about it. People here who are attached to the human rights program will continue that work. I think we all need to put more money, since money speaks loudly in this country, into programs that support social justice. And we can't let up the pressure on the Congress, which is starting to respond. Barack and Hillary need to get back in Washington and stop campaigning for president and start <laughs> dealing with the situation now. I'm sorry, it's a somewhat lame answer, but I don't have a better one right now. 
If someone else has a better one, I'd, I'd welcome that. Um, the comment was, of, well, her fear is that a change in the administration won't change very much, and is she wrong about that? Um, I think it will take many, many years of really determined work to undo the very serious damage that has been done in so many arenas that a change in one administration isn't going to change very much, very fast. I think that I felt hopeless for a long time, but a friend of mine, an African-American writer who I was touring with in Germany a couple of years ago, reminded me that the African-American community spent three centuries waiting for change and working for change in the ways that were possible for them. And the worst thing that you can do is to say that this is bad and can't get better and stop working at it. One administration isn't going to change much, but I think of the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. People who want change can force their governments to do different. And that's what we need to be doing. The question had to do with Israel and its fight against terrorism and the U.S. and its fight against terrorism. I think that both countries are doing as much as possibly can be done to polarize the world and to make justice very, very remote. So yes, I think that both countries are behaving very similarly right now. I think someone in the human rights program who's more closely connected with Israel, Palestine, and those struggles could speak about this more knowledgeably than I can. Would I like to comment on Kurt Vonnegut's death? Um, you know, he had, I think he wrote about some of these things probably in the best way possible with a, a light touch and a fantastic touch. And um, unfortunately, it's not my style. I can't do it. I take myself too seriously, I guess, or the world. But, but yes, and Kurt Vonnegut died yesterday of head injuries that he sustained in a fall. He said he was surprised he lived as long as he did because he was such a heavy smoker. Um, but that wasn't what killed him. And his most recent book, which is also a kind of memoir, is, is quite a wonderful book, I've been told. I haven't yet read it. What kind of advice would I have for undergraduates? First of all, um, the passion of young people that I meet is truly my source of hope in the world. When I was young, we took to the streets a lot. I don't know that that did any good, but it made us feel better. Um, but I think that it's it, that one of the one of the problems that or problems one of the obstacles to action that your generation has to contend with is the, the way in which you can create your own little world with your iPod and your, or whatever it is, and your phone and so on. And that also the, the constant, I feel it myself, the constant inundation of email and web messages and this and that, you, you sometimes feel that you've acted because you've read about a situation. And so I, I do think that you need to move beyond the net, actually, into real, I'm not, into real action. And that sometimes means, sometimes it does mean taking to the street. Sometimes it means getting together and sending physical letters. Jan Schakowsky, who's a, a, in Congress from um, the 
Evanston North Side area, said that basically congressmen, women disregard email messages because they know that that these things are sent around just with a flick of a of a finger, and that what they pay attention to are the written messages, and they will actually come into committee meetings with you know this stack of letters on this issue. So sometimes an old-fashioned letter-writing campaign is good. Sometimes going to Washington with a group of like-minded people, organizing a meeting with a representative, the more voices they hear, believe me, that's how they make up their minds to vote, by and large. I know these are pedestrian things, Speaking, writing, taking advantage of opportunities for student publications, and then, in contradiction to what I just said, use the web in the ways that you can use it and that your generation has the skill and the technical know-how to do. I mean, I think of the young woman in Alabama with her Peace Takes Courage website. Um, if you don't know this site, it's peacetakescourage.com, it's really quite something, and it's starting to have an impact on people around the country. So you have the savvy to use the net to, to focus a message, to use the blogosphere in that way, and I think you need to be doing some of both, I guess. Oh, I wish I had a, a recipe that would say, everyone do this, and it would make things change and I feel a little anticlimactic with my with my not very <laughs> vigorous advice maybe Suzanne has no, something else well the one thing I could say thank you Sarah <laughs>